invite us this morning. Actually, this, um, I'm not, let me pull up my chair here. Um, I want to invite us this morning. I'm going to be sharing from Matthew 25. And I have to say, this passage is a passage I have taught from in the past. And um, I told my wife, I said, I'm kind of excited because um, as I come to this passage, um, I'm coming at it with different eyes and I want to share some things that I feel like, I feel like the Lord has shown me and uh, hopefully will be encouraging. Um, Matthew 25. Oh, I'm reading from my old tattered Bible. Um, from the New American Standard. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Uh, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, They all got drowsy and began to sleep, but at midnight, almost a sermon by itself, the darkest place when we hadn't anticipated. At midnight, what verse am I at? (laughs) Six. There was a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudence answered, No, uh, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, open, uh, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Lord, would you speak to us? Open our, the ears of our heart, our understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one time in my memory, pretty sure it's the only time, but the only time that I remember that my father bought a, a new car. It was a memorable experience because somewhere, it would have been uh, like mid-70s, uh, my dad decided to buy a car for my two sisters who were now of driving age. And so... My brothers, my two oldest brothers, had driven just, anyway, kind of stuff that my mechanic accuses me of making my girls drive, but, you know, old stuff, older stuff, the stuff I can afford. Anyway, so uh, my my dad was able to to, to get a newer car, and the car that he decided to get was supposed to be a game changer. It was an aluminum block. New design, made an engine like they'd never made before. In Arabic, the name means descending eagle. In Spanish, the name of this car meant or means beautiful meadow. All I can say is that the 
Have you got that picture of the yellow Vega? It was not beautiful, and it was anything but majestic. Um, you know, almost immediately, this car became problematic. I sent this photo, by the way, to my siblings yesterday. We talk a lot via text and Marco Polo and all kinds. Of, we're we're kind of crazy that way. My kids actually laugh at us. We talk about to boy about everything going on in our lives. But we're remembering this car. And boy, oh boy, did it become a, a storyteller. Because, again, right from the get-go, this thing began to have difficulties that nobody anticipated. My dad was hoping to get a car that my sister could drive that wouldn't be problematic, and problematic it was. Now, Chevrolet built this car with this new design, new engine, and they hadn't uh, actually proven much about this aluminum block engine, which now I guess they build them with aluminum blocks and they know how to do it, but back then they didn't. Um, <clears throat> one of the things they found out is that it would get really hot, a lot hotter than their previous engine blocks, and it would lose fluids, both, both the coolant and, more importantly, the oil. Now, uh, I think even before my second oldest sister, or my, let's see, third, yeah, the third oldest sister began to drive, they already had to replace a clutch in the old Vega. The Vega that my dad, now my dad's a Dutchman, right? So he didn't call it a Vega, he said the Vega. All right? Who's driving the Vega? And it was a manual, you know, so like we're going to teach the kids how to drive. And, of course, my sisters drive as a lot of new drivers would with their foot halfway depressed on the clutch. And, of course, that became a topic for my older brother, who's a mechanic, trying to instruct them, don't do this. Uh, went through at least I had two clutches that I remember, probably more than that. Uh, they drove the car to Michigan together on a, on a, uh, on a holiday together, came back. But it wasn't the, the clutch issue that was so memorable. And here's what's interesting. Driving it all the way from Colorado to Michigan and back and all the different things, they never, neither one of my sisters had an accident with this car. And to my knowledge, neither one had been stopped, didn't have any, you know, any traffic violations. They kept the car gassed up. It actually did what it was supposed to do except for one thing. As my sister is going to school, to work, back home, her life is full. And she didn't check the oil. Critical error. Now, again, what's interesting is what became discovered was that apparently this was a rhythm for my sisters for a good deal of time, long enough to actually burn the entire engine up. Fairly new car. Dad's driving an older car so the girls can drive the new car that they burn up. Now, again, I don't recall the mileage was on this car. It was, all I remember is that it was fairly new. And, and when my dad found out, you know, it was like, um, you know, how could you possibly drive without oil? It's a story that was not easily forgotten. It was one that I was reminded of over and over again. Did you check the oil? As I'm preparing for this message, I sent a text to my daughter who just got a newer, new to her car and said, have you checked the oil? Um, paying attention to the vehicle. This is what I want you to see, uh, is that 
It didn't matter the skill of how they drove the car, but it's the fact that they didn't pay attention to it. They didn't pay attention specifically to the oil. Didn't matter how well she drove it. In our text, Jesus tells a parable. By the way, I titled the message this morning, Check, Check the Oil. And he tells this parable where you have five or ten virgins, five foolish, five wise. And, and he's talking about it in this context. It's, it's the context of the arrival of the kingdom of God. So he's saying to his friends, here's the difference between the arrival of the kingdom of God, light or dark, whether you're in or out, being known or unknown. Have you checked the oil? The oil that, by the way, in Jesus' day, you'll see the, the, in this next picture, the, the oil that everybody understood in that day was the oil that gave light. That's how they lit their homes. So, here's the challenge with the text. A couple of things. First, we can assume that many times, I've, I've even heard, if you go through even all three of these parables in Matthew 25, you begin to get this implication like, oh my goodness. I might, if, if I haven't got this right, I'm out. Right? Um, if I don't have enough oil, I'm out. So we kind of internalize a message that that begins to give this picture. So we, we, we assume that Jesus is telling a picture about future judgment based on virtue. Here's the problem with that interpretation. They were all ten virtuous, virgins, pious. And, and so Jesus, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And what causes the separation of the five wise and the five foolish? It, it isn't a lack of virtue. And, and what we'll see in a bit is actually, it's, it's a lack of what he calls readiness, but, but I'm, we're going to see here in a minute that it's actually a lack of encounter. But five of them assume, watch this, five of them assume that virtue is enough for the life that they're in, in the light. But then Jesus tells this story where the kingdom of heaven comes at the darkest hour. And again, you can interpret that in lots of ways. It really is true. Now, the first error of the virgins, of these five foolish virgins, is not virtue but assumption that their virtue is enough. Here's the next challenge as we look at the text is this idea of getting oil. I, I've heard this interpreted that, you know, the, the getting the oil is all about our intimacy, our relationship with God. But and see, this can kind of get tricky because when we conclude that the wise virgins managed to secure something that the foolish didn't, we can begin to focus on the idea of lack and how do we make sure that we don't lack something. 
And, and it can easily turn into almost a works righteousness striving kind of message. Well, wait a minute. I have Bible verses that say it's by grace I'm saved through faith, and this not for myself. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast, right? That's, I'm giving the scripture, right? So what's the oil? If it's not virtue, and where did they find it? Good questions. So, again, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, check the oil, we need to take a closer look. What's the oil? Where do I find it? And, and, and guys, I, I, I've alluded to this a while ago. I have, I have taught this. I've heard others teach this repeatedly that it, it, the, the idea of oil is connected to our communion with God and our level of turning up, showing up, removing sin from our life. And again, uh, you know, and, and so we get this idea that somehow the, we build up a reservoir of oil that will carry us through the night times of our life. And so I want to be really clear about something. Jesus delineating something. The oil isn't something that they produced. And the more time I've spent in this text, here's what I've concluded. I'm going to jump right to the conclusion, and then we're going to come right back to it, okay? Here's the conclusion. The oil is the oil of mercy. And Jesus paints a picture of the wisdom of living surrendered to the abundant olive tree of many mercies, the cross. Oil that lights our darkness in the darkest of our li- points of our lives and that can give light to others. Oil that is capable of lighting the darkest of spaces. And beloved, that is good news. Hopefully removing the angst. Three stories in Matthew 25. You've got the, the parable of the ten virgins. You've got the, the parable of the talents. And then you've got the, uh, what's the last one? Oh, the, the parable of the judge, right? And, and Jesus, they're all talking about this future context, this sort of future idea. But they contain a, a theme of a return. of The bridegroom, the master, and the judge. Get my three fingers up. There we go. Uh, and so perhaps you, like me, have heard this sort of message as a, well, an idea of the return of Jesus or the idea of a future judgment coming. And it's maybe even created some sense of angst. And, and you know, in the darkest place of our life and our world, How do we bring light? How are we wise? How do we have oil in our life that can bring light into darkness? And here's what I find intriguing is that so often if we conclude that that virtue itself is what brings light, we're going to land in the wrong place. Let me give you some Bible verses, but, but also let me also invite us to own some language that maybe we've heard. I, you know, wait a minute. I want to be a light. We've heard that, right? Sitting on a hill cannot be hidden. I want to be salt. I want to be light. 
And how often have you heard that idea of light and salt being connected to your idea of your personal virtue? I want to look different. Again, I'm not diminishing the call to a virtuous life. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I'm saying is, wait a minute, is, are we connecting the, the, the right dot? Is the virtue of truth and purity in my life what brings light? To, quote, stand for the truth, fill in the blank, or even at some points in my own life, my passion to stand for it, and my fervor to stand against those who disagree with me. Now there I'm starting to own it. And thinking that that is light, standing against people who are walking in obvious evil, Yeah, spoken or not, it's kind of a, a conclusion that we have communicated. Yet in the parable, may I underline this twice? Virtue isn't what gave light. It's important, but it isn't what gave light. Is, it, is there, Are you hearing me in the room, right? It's oil. So Jesus concludes the parable by pointing out that the bridegroom recognizes the true virgins, not by their virtue, but by the light that was produced by the oil. So it's not something they produced or provided. They're encouraged to go get some. So what is it? I'm going to take just a few moments, and I want to paint it with a broad brush. Not too broad, though. But I want to point historically, scripturally, and then the church, the testimony of the church, okay? Um, Archbishop of the, uh, the, the former Archbishop of the Eastern Orthodox Church, see, I, I believe, again, the oil is mercy. It's Lazar Pahalo, this Archbishop of the Eastern Orthodox Church, that pointed out that olive trees were named after mercy. So I want, okay, we're thinking historically. Jesus' listeners, what would they have thought about? Okay, they're an agrarian culture, and so they're going to go, oh, uh, mercy. Oh, that's like that. In fact, you know, Hebraic language begins kind of with word pictures. So Jesus talks about oil, and they're like, okay, what? Oh, what's named after oil? An olive tree. Why was an olive tree uh, named after mercy? Because those trees gave oil so abundantly, it provided everything you know that they would need for cooking and for their lives. But in, in so many different ways, it, it became a they, they produced so abundantly that it would perform became a form of currency in uh, in the Middle East, especially in the Palestinian region. So if you had a grove of olive trees, you had something that would not only provide for you, but it was a for source of provision. It was seen as a place of abundance. Little wonder, interestingly, that the Greek language, the original word for oil and the word for mercy are almost the same. They sound almost the same. 
So we have a visual picture of Jesus' hearers that hear the word oil and mercy. It, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of clear. Mercy, oh yeah, it's like those trees that have provided for generations for our family. And, and interestingly, in the Old Testament, we had this rehearsed over and over again, right? The Lord's loving kindness, his mercy from generation to generation, right? They're rehearsing this over and over. So this is the picture that's going to come to their mind. Oh, by the way, interesting that one of the most punitive, spiteful acts that has occurred between Israel and, and, and the Palestinians has been throughout the years, not, not just now, but throughout the years is when they would not only come against each other with, in, in acts of war, but they would destroy one another's olive groves. It's considered incredibly punitive, not merciful. So here we have Jesus uh, telling a story about oil. But remember a little bit earlier when he gives a sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to talk about acts of mercy. That's how it comes out in the it comes out translated for us charitable acts. In the original language, it's acts of mercy or zedekah. And Jesus said, when you're doing these things, your acts of mercy, see to it that you're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy them, but these cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus speaks in Matthew 5 and 6 that this is a regular practice of kingdom life, is that you're living a life that's demonstrating merciful acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, Cornelius is this Gentile, and an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, watch this, your prayers and your acts of mercy have ascended before the Lord as a memorial. Wait a minute, that's really theologically interesting. Cornelius, you didn't go to Bible college. You went and you participated in the heart of God to others. And God said, oh, (laughs) there's somebody who understands my heart. This is what I'm like. So let's take a little bit more look at the scripture, and and I want to connect this. Okay, we see Jesus saying, Here's the oil, and, and again, historically for them, it's going to be connected to that, that idea of oil is, is connected to mercy. And then here's another picture in those intertestamental books that we talked about last week that haven't been gone out of the Bible that long. But in First and Second Maccabees, there's a story that is referred to among the Jewish people as the miracle of lights. It was, what happened was there was a an throwing out of Rome, and so they went to rededicate the temple. As they went to rededicate the temple during the festival of booze, they're trying to come before worship, and here's the story. The story goes like this. They had one day of oil, one, one day's oil, I'm not saying that right, one day's worth, there we go, of oil, and they went to light the lights in order to 
engage in this, this time of dedication, and they're like, ah, we don't have enough. And the oil burns for eight days. It's called the miracle of Hanukkah lights. It's observed and remembered even to this day. So watch this. Jesus would have, by the way, known that story. So by the time of Jesus, in language, in history, mercy is connected to oil and light. Are you, are you guys following me here? Okay, so... Um, the history of the church has been that they were called to rehearse, actually, even, even among God's people. Let's, let's reach back again into the Old Testament. The Psalms, as known as the Psalms of Ascent, um, in which they would rehearse this abundant mercy of God. Let me point to two Psalms. One of them you probably are familiar with, but it, it starts out something like this. Praise to the God of gods, and then the response is, his loving kindness endures forever. That's Psalm 136. When my dad would read this at the dinner table, it got to be kind of long because we had to, he would always ask us to repeat it. But what I didn't understand was that the psalm of ascents meant what, that, that as men and women were making their way back to Jerusalem, one of the things they would do is they would read these psalms, and they would rehearse and remember with one another, oh, yes the abundant, everlasting mercy of God. His loving kindness endures forever and ever. They're reminding each other because we have a tendency to forget. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there is a church prayer service called the Polyelios. It's the abundant mercy service. And interestingly, they have this really large chandelier that they put in the middle of the building, and it's all of the lamps are filled with oil, and they swing this chandelier back and forth as they chant Psalm 135 and 136. The mercy of God brings light in my darkness. So how do I find that oil? Okay, is everybody following me? You're, you're kind of seeing why I'm landing like, wait a minute. This, this oil isn't, isn't just my prayer time. This oil represents the mercy, the abundant, the superabundant mercy of God. So then, as I, as, I, as I think about this, how do I find that oil? Two means I want to submit to us this morning. To marvel and to mourn. The mercy of God is not a theological abstract idea, but a reality that we encounter as like the people of God's people of past, that we rehearse and remember, oh yes, and I'm encountering the marvel of his mercy. You let us out of this land of Egypt. You set us free with a strong and a mighty hand. Your loving kindness endures forever. We're about to come into the season of Advent. What are we going to do? We're going to rehearse and we're going to remember the mercy of God. Here's my point. I gain access to mercy as I surrender to mercy. What that means is that I put my virtue in its place. Remember what Paul called his virtue? He's got a couple of different places in letter to the Corinthians and, and then um, 
In the book of Philippians, he goes through this long rehearsal. All of those things that were counted to my credit, I count as rubbish, filthy rags, manure is nothing. What I remember is the mercy of God. I have peace, forgiveness, access to his presence because of his mercy. So this is why we're coming into a season in which we marvel at the mercy of God. God became a man. This is stunning. You know, interesting, isn't it, that I, I can't think of an account in which one individual comes and cries out for mercy. There's a blind man outside of Jericho. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, check out my virtue. He says, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's a woman crawling on her hands and her feet who touches the edge of his garment, and, God reve- and Jesus reveals mercy. I-, I don't think of a time in which he hears one crying out for mercy that he doesn't respond because the cry for mercy is our admission of our need. And watch, follow this, please, because this is really, really important as we understand, as we begin to, like, say, okay, wait, wait a minute. Mercy, my admission of my need by its nature is a choice to be vulnerable. And to be amazed at the largeness of the loving kindness of God again today. You know, I, I think, again, I've got verses where I see Paul who says, I, I'm, I'm going to glory in nothing else but the cross of Christ. It's a marvel that invites us to marvel. The mercy of God is not just a reality to meet us in our weakness, but it's, it's what we're invited to extend to others. See, mercy arise when I marvel at him, but also, watch, what do I do with those around me when they're hurting and in pain? Blessed are those who mourn and lament. They will be comforted. Mercy arise when I marvel at it. Mercy arise when I sit and I mourn with those who mourn. That, you know, at our own weakness, as we sit with others in their weakness, brokenness, and frailty, don't have to have an answer. Watch this. Why? Because blessed are the merciful. They'll be shown mercy. How do I get this? This oil is mercy. How do I get it? The oil of mercy. I believe the only way that we encounter mercy is in vulnerability to God. Ready? Ready? and to one another. That I'm willing to walk and to expose my frailty. Interesting, it's very, very similar to what actual love looks like. Interesting, it's exactly how God chose to reveal himself in vulnerability. He comes. See, the the oil that brings light into our darkness to reveal who we actually are and who my neighbor actually is, 
doesn't come as a result of how virtuous I am, but actually in my willingness to be vulnerable in receiving and extending mercy. How do I find it? Well, to marvel, to mourn, to be vulnerable before God and others to place myself in a place where I might experience pain. Wait, that is exactly how Jesus reveals the mercy of the Father. Now, where, where do I get it? What market do I go to? It's interesting. What they need, these five virgins, isn't found at the bridegroom's house. I got some extra. It's not found at the master's estate. It's not found in the judge's chambers, those three little parables there. In Jesus' story, the virgins are encouraged to go to the market. And just so we capture this and not miss it, in the final parable, Jesus shows us what the market is. among the least and the last and the lowest. He clarifies where mercy is given and received, where we actually see his face. And the face of mercy is in those that we didn't expect, where we didn't expect. Oh, that's similar to that parable, isn't it? I didn't expect him there. You know, St. John Chrysostom said, if you want storehouses, you have them in the bellies of the poor. Beloved, we, where, do I, where do I find that oil? It, in the market of our life. This thought hit me early in the middle. I don't know. Sometimes these things hit me at 3 and 4 in the morning, and I'm learning to get better at trying to, you know, write, write them down on my phone so I don't forget them. But I was thinking about this parable and, and this idea that, you know, there are lamps and there are flasks of oil. And, you know, interesting, the filling up of those flasks was not connected with the bridegroom's return. But whether or not they had actually engaged in mercy in the market of their life. So then, then watch, then that last couple of verses begins to make sense. Because watch this, to those whose lamps, you know, didn't bring it, they're running out of oil, they don't have a flask of oil, the response almost seems harsh. I don't know you. And, and it sounds harsh if we're, if we're basing this on the idea of virtue, but maybe it's not a secret passcode because we're saved by grace through faith. So maybe if we took another look at this, maybe Jesus is giving us a picture of those who chose to pretend their way with virtue and religious certainty but never engage in a life of mercy and vulnerability before God and before others. 
who, who never surrendered to their own need of mercy and extended it to others. Oh, wait, that begins to sound more like the Jesus that I know. It begins to make sense in which the one who came and said, I, I know the pearl of great prize, but what you look like now, that's not you. I know what you look like. The fake facade you're trying to present to me, I don't know. So maybe this isn't rejection. Maybe this is just recognition. Okay? So where does all this lead us to? Um, I really appreciate what Brad Zerzak says about this. He said it leads us to the abundant olive tree of many mercies, the cross of Jesus Christ. How do I acquire the oil of the Spirit that gains me entry into the kingdom banquet? At the cross. How do I receive God's mercy? At the cross. How do I become merciful in my deeds, but more so in my character? At the cross. Just as the true vine pours out the wine of the blood of Christ, so the true olive tree produces the oil of many mercies and the grace of the Spirit. These parallel pictures, the wine-bearing vine and the oil-bearing olive tree, are images of one tree of life, the cross of Christ. While we await the someday return of the bridegroom, master, and judge, we also encounter him in the now-a-day markets, dispensing the oil of mercy and grace to those who are on the margins, behind the edges, on the street corners. They're invited in, no matter how battered and broken they are. And so are those graced by the Spirit to serve them. May we be the virgins, found faithful, filling our lamps with Jesus' oil and becoming familiar with his face now so that he is not a stranger then. Check your oil. The oil that lights our darkness, that gives light to others, that's capable of lighting the darkest of spaces. Beloved, this is good news. Right now where we are. Lord, as we come to this place, I, I just say, God, give us faith to believe you. You still bring light that pushes back the darkness. I want to invite us uh, to close in a prayer together. And this is a prayer I pray almost, almost every day, but it is one of my closing prayers in, in my normal prayer time, I want to invite you to stand, and we'll close with this prayer as we pray it together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your humble servants, give you humble thanks for all of your goodness and your loving kindness to us and all you have made. Pray this with me. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we would show forth your praise, not only with our lips but with our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory throughout all ages, forever and ever. Amen.